I thank you for uh, this day. I thank you for the opportunity to come, even now, you know, and to be able to sing to you, open up our heart to you. I pray that what would happen here is that you would allow us to grow and you would stir things in us that want to pursue you better. And so I welcome your presence and your goodness and your grace in this house, in this place. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Let it be so. God, so we're, we're moving into this idea of building blocks for a sustainable faith. And instead of necessarily re-looking at the details of what we covered last week, I just want to read through 2 Peter. You can see it in your handout as well. Uh, 1 and then from verses 1 all the way through verse 8. And I'm going to read fairly rapidly. So just going to be aware of that. This letter is from Simon Peter. Self-describes himself this way. Uh, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ, one submitted, one sent. I'm writing to you who share the same precious faith that we have. And this faith, this common love for Jesus was given to you because God started it with his justice, his fairness, the fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and our Savior. So my prayer for you is that God would give you more and more grace. My prayer for you is that God would give you more and more peace. That you would grow in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Who by his divine power, you know, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. All the resources there. We have received all of this by coming to know him. The one who called us to himself by means of his astonishing and marvelous glory and excellence. Because of his glory and excellence, he has given us these great and these precious promises to live by. These are the promises that enable you and me to share his divine nature. To have, have God in our, at work in our lives. And then he says, also to escape the world's corruption that is caused by human desires. In other words, to escape so much of the stuff that is destructive and toxic in our culture and in our world. And within our own hearts at times. In view of all this, now watch what he does next. He gives them a list, building blocks, one upon the other. In view of all of this, in view of this expansive opportunity that God has opened up to us. He says, listen, make every effort to respond to those great promises. Supplement your faith, that's the first one, with a, a generous provision of moral excellence, and moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. And the more you grow like this, the more productive and the more useful you're just going to be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a great thing to start with. And again, it's helpful to consider the early church... When these words were written a couple thousand years ago, it, emer it was emerging in, in a world very different than ours. It was emerging in a world where books actually were not nearly as available as they are today. Um, in fact, it wasn't until the, fifth, well, the late 15th century when uh, the Western world was revolutionized by movable print. Um, you know, the Gutenberg, Gutenberg Press. And uh, it was just at that time when books began to proliferate and become available to mass audience. A lot of the driver in that was the desire on the part of people to see the Bible be able to be in the hands of people, not just the elite and the uh, very wealthy, but everyone. And that drove a lot of, a lot of what happened. And I think we've, we forget what a transformative period in the world it was when the Gutenberg press was invented and began to have an impact in the world. Now, you know, today, we don't, we don't have the Gutenberg Press. We have Googleberg Press, right? 
So our, we may not real, we are living in a, a very similar window when the world is altering before us. And now, if you think about it, the access of information is not our problem at all. In fact, it's incredible. I mean, we take for granted on a daily basis that in, in a few seconds' time, we can have access to information that was previously unattainable, unavailable, and would have taken months, years, sometimes lifetimes, to never even be able to acquire. It's phenomenal when we think about it. This stunning expansion of knowledge that is now available to everyone, or at least those who have the ability to access it. And that's its an astonishing thing, almost like We've said this before, but it's almost like science fiction if you went back a little bit in time. Now, here's our challenge, though. We now, that means our world has changed. And we're just starting to wrestle with the implications of that change. Now the issue is not knowledge acquisition. You can get knowledge from a lot of places fast. The question is how to delineate the scope of that knowledge, how to keep our, how to decide what things I'm supposed to be focusing on. Because now it's like I've got so many options. And in a different way, we're being swamped with with so many words. And so it's a very different world that we're living in. And yet the Bible has amazing relevancy even for today, maybe even more so. Um, I say all that partly because when you look at the list that we just read, one of the ways that, that instruction was carried in the ancient world, the way it was imparted, especially to younger students, um, was to have easily memor memorized lists that could be incul you know, inculculated into the minds, um, cemented in in an easy, quick way, because you didn't have books necessarily accessing. So a lot of things were given orally, and they were given in ways that could be quickly memorized and remembered. And so you can see things. This is one of those kinds of a list, where it's one after the other. And you can kind of see this idea of building upon this, building upon that, building upon your faith. And you see this list kind of being made. That's part of the reason why it's given this way. Now, we go back to that fifth verse, and you see that he's saying, look, give Give all diligence. This is where our focus is going to be. Give all diligence to add to your faith. Um, older version says virtue. We translate this in a, in a more modern version, moral excellence. We're going to talk about that. But the fact of the matter is he starts with faith. Faith is the initial building block. It's the starter. And what do we mean by faith? It's the foundation stone. But in its broadest sense, it means to trust. It means to believe. It means to have confidence in the word, the character, or you know, the work of another person. I think all of us know what it is like to have confidence in someone who we view as reliable. What a blessing that is. I, I, when we have people that we know that we can count on, when they say they're going to do something, they, they follow through. The speed of trust, huge, right? It closes the gap because we don't have to double check things. But at the same time, I think many of us have known what it's like to have people who in our lives who are untrustworthy or not reliable. And they may be amazingly talented people, but that creates its own kind of insecurity, doesn't it? Because we don't really know it's going to be followed up. So we're constantly double-checking that. And we're, not, we're kind of like half expecting it might not come through. So it, it actually, faith matters. Trust matters. God is, is utterly trustworthy. He wants us to be that way, too. But, you know, if you think about the starting place, this faith, this idea of foundational virtue... From, okay, from the, from the Christian life, the journey of faith begins with a willingness to accept Jesus. So the first step of faith is the willingness to open up our hearts to Christ. In Romans 10, 9, this is one of the great verses of the Bible. It makes it really clear what it means to be saved, what faith's confession looks like. It says, if you confess with your, your mouth the Lord Jesus, 
and you believe in your heart you, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The gospel is really that simple at its core. It's about confessing Christ, who he is, your openness to him, your willingness to accept him as your savior, and our willingness to believe that God has raised him from the dead, that we might have life over death. This is what the scriptures teach us. That's the starting place of faith. Now, some of us, we can look back on our life, and I know we're not all the same place. I get that totally. But some of us, we look back on our life. We can remember. I know people who remember the very day. They can remember the exact moment when they said, yes, I want to receive Jesus as my savior. And they, in fact, I've talked to people and they go, this is kind of, I've, I've heard this. I don't remember when I first heard it, but I heard someone say to me, yeah, I have a natural birthday and I have a spiritual birthday. And they tell me the day that they felt like they were born again. They opened up their heart to Jesus. And they marked that day as special. There are others of us who, well, the truth is, coming to Christ, following Christ has been more of a process. It's something that was spread out over time. And um, somewhere along the way, we went from being a seeker or someone who was familiar to and it's hard to say exactly when that happened, but we started to become a follower. We started to confess him. And this is particularly true for some of us. Like, you know, I probably put myself in the latter category. I really can't remember the specific moment. I grew up around church. I was in Sunday school. You know, I had an idea of Jesus. I knew the Bible stories because I was taught them as a boy. But it wasn't really until I was a teenager in high school that I truly made a decision to mark Jesus in my life as my Savior and my Lord. And I said, I want to follow you, Lord. Now, I, I don't even remember that exact moment. It just kind of happened in that, in that framework of my life. And, and for many of us, it's, the same, it's happened the same way. But you know what? It's helpful, though, to periodically put a stake in the ground. And one of the reasons we're really big on the idea of being baptized is for many of us, that becomes, and we, we rejoiced in that last, in the last few weeks, but for many of us, that becomes a marking point because we really don't have one. It's, it's, it's sort of unclear. And, and I'll tell you this, if we haven't made that step of faith, it's a good time to do it to, to, and, and to share that, to confess that, to share that with someone else. But again, I, I say that because that's like the foundation stone. And I was thinking about it. I was thinking about someone who I've always admired. And whenever I get a chance to talk about his conversion moment, I think it's really helpful because what it does is it illustrates that not all of us come to Jesus the same way. Some of us, we come like it's a miracle. And our eyes just open up and our heart is tugged and all of a sudden something churns inside of us and we say, I must follow. Others of us, we come so cautiously, so carefully, um, some, in some cases with so much doubt and fear. And the amazing thing is the Lord meets us all where we are. And um, I was thinking about C.S. Lewis. Many of you know him, I know not everyone does. C.S. Lewis is significant, not just because he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, right, which is a well-known, uh, you know, fantasy, um, you know, the books made into movies, et cetera. And they are filled with Christ allegories, by the way, um, and just so much to teach us, not just about what the stories themselves are, but about the Christian life. But that's, that's a whole... You can, the bottom, the bottom line, C.S. Lewis was not always a follower of Jesus. He ends up becoming probably the greatest writer, certainly the Christian writer of the 20th century, clearly the, its foremost apologist, and perhaps of all time if we exclude the Apostle Paul. I mean, it's that significant, his writings. He wrote, he was a, a professor uh, of medieval history, Oxford and Cambridge. He was brilliant. He was... He was just an amazing man, but he did not believe in Jesus. He was an agnostic at best. Um, he talks about how his life was impacted for, you know, and how he came to Jesus. 
And part of it, it happened is because he was in a small group. You're going to recognize this name. In his small group, and you want to talk about a cool small group, C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings guy, right? And Tolkien has, Tolkien is the one who actually is one of the guys who affects C.S. Lewis and causes him to re-examine his faith and to think about what it might mean to accept Jesus. But Lewis fights it for a while, but eventually he comes around and he describes it. And he writes, later on he's going to write books like Mere Christianity and, you know, he's going to write this classic book called The Screwtape Letters in which he talks about uh, two fallen angels who have this strategy of how to take and undermine the faith of a, of a believer. And so inadvertently having a lot of fun with it, we learn about how to strengthen our life with God. He does a lot of really interesting things, but Lewis in his book, Surprised by Joy, writes this about his coming to Jesus. And I thought it was a great connect, so read it with, I put it in your handout, second column there. He says, you must picture me alone, and watch, listen to his, listen to how he describes it. It's classic. He says, you must picture me alone in that room in Oxford, night after night, feeling whatever, whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, that, that steady, that unrelenting approach. Look how he describes God. That unrelenting approach of him who I desired earnestly not to meet. And then that which I feared greatly, or greatly feared, had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term, the spring quarter of 1929, I gave in. You know what I did? I admitted that God was God. And I knelt down and I prayed. And perhaps that night, I was the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. <laughs> and then he says this. I did not see what is now the most shining and obvious thing. The divine humiliation, which will accept a convert even on such terms. What he did here is he started to wonder how God would take someone as reluctant as he, as so filled with contradictions and elements of doubt. And he, he was implying this, that all it takes is, a, is what Jesus said was a mustard seed of faith, and God will respond. It doesn't have to be perfect and complete. It just has to be a tiny little thing that's honest. And God can do amazing things. Little did he know that that was going to become a catalyst to literally millions of people having a strength in their relationship with God in Christ because of that decision that was made so reluctantly. It reminded me of another situation in the book of Mark. I was reading about it a few days ago. In Mark 9, 20 through 25, there's this picture of a desperate father. He's got a son. His son is, is, has real problems. He is a, he's got a, the way the Bible describes it, he's a victim of spiritual torment. He's got physical manifestations of that torment. He's had this affliction for most of his life. His father hears that Jesus has come into town, the gentle Nazarene who teaches but also heals. Word gets back to him. He decides he'll make a desperate try. He runs to Jesus, and you can read about it in Mark 9. He runs to Jesus, and he throws himself at him, and he says, you know, I, I, I have a son. I, I, wa I want to know if, if, if you can help us. And Jesus said, do you believe? He said to him, basically, well, I believe you can. Jesus said, if do you believe I can? Because if you do, I tell you this right now, that all things are possible. And then, again, Jesus said, do you believe? And, 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 and what the man does is, is a great description, and it connects a lot, because this is what he does. It's so honest. It's so real. 
he basically throws himself at his feet and he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's one of the few times this ever happens in the Bible. It was so honest. It was so real. I believe. Help my unbelief. I mean, it was, de- it was so real. You know what? Jesus responded to that. He, he didn't say, you know what? Until you can get that faith thing tightened up a bit. <laughs> I don't want to half believe. No, he said, that's, that's okay. Watch what I can do. And he touched and he healed his family. He healed his family. Same principle, you know. I was reading about uh, in a book that I, I brought. It's called, uh, it's from one of my favorite authors, a guy named Gordon McDonald. His book's called Midcourse Correction. In this book, he, he mentions a man named Dante. Some of you recognize that name. You've heard about it. In one of the great books of Western history is the Divine Comedy, this collection of pieces. It talks about hell and purgatory. But in this book, uh, this is this, it's interesting because McDonald talks about how a lot of times faith's process gets triggered by certain times that are critical in our lives when we're more open than other times to making real adjustments either opening up our heart to God or taking seriously our faith in a way that we haven't done before. And he goes back and he starts talking about Dante. And Dante is this um, 14th century Florentine poet. I'm just going to read a little piece of this. Just listen. So McDonald says this about Dante. He says, Dante was a, a 14th century Florentine poet. He was 35 years old when he gave the world the divine comedy. That's the book I refer to. It's considered a standard in the repertoire of Western literature. And he wrote it during a defining moment in his life Everything was in a state of meltdown. Dante had been on the losing side of a failed revolution. uh, And as a result, he had been exiled from his beloved city of Florence in Italy. And he knew that if he ever returned, he would be put to death. So he was depressed. The result, a life suddenly flooded with enormous uncertainty, enormous doubt, and fear. For a man man who was drowning in disappointment, it was time for a mid-course correction. And you discern his state of mind when you read the first, the opening words of that great book, The Divine Comedy. And I put those words in your handout. You can see them there in the second column at the bottom. For this is what Dante writes. In the middle of the journey of my life, I came to my senses in a dark forest, for I had lost the straight path. I came to my senses in a dark forest, for I had lost the straight path. And with those lines, Dante commenced on an imaginative literary journey that explored the regions of purgatory, hell, and heaven, and highlighted the lives of people, some of the ancient history, and some friends and adversaries who were Dante's contemporaries. Read the Divine Comedy. You'll be grateful that you didn't make Dante's enemies list. Because if you did make it, it meant that your life's secrets were exposed and brought to judgments and punishments designed and prescribed by a very creative and vindictive poet. But the real issue of the Divine Comedy, this is what I want us to hear, is Dante himself. Vital optimism was ebbing away in his life. I came to my senses in a dark forest. These words describe something of a personal awakening. Eyes opening to things either forgotten or not seen before. The man is telling us he is preparing 
to rearrange his life. I came to my senses in a dark forest, for I had lost the straight path. Now, MacDonald goes on to do something. What he does is he says, in his mind, he writes, he says, he goes, I essentially, he says, see three things. Three, there are three conditions, he says, that, as he put it, that tend to trigger dark forest moments where we can come to our senses. And he talked about these three conditions that tend to trigger those dark forest moments that can lead to either more darkness or lead us into a different path, a path of breakout and breakthrough. Um, and, he, and he says, here are these three conditions. And so I wanted to put them up one at a time, just look at them for a moment and have us think about it. He says the first dark forest kind of condition that triggers this, he says, and he called it personal disintegration. And this is how he described it. He says, this is what happens in our lives when something that has tremendous meaning to us melts down. He says, it may be something that dies, someone very close to us that dies. It may be a critical relationship that just explodes. It may be a loss of our sense of identity or a turn of our health or something that causes our entire world to be rocked and it requires us to reorient ourselves. We are in a dark forest. Things that we have known are melting down. In these meltdown places, in these dark forest places, he says this is oftentimes where we have to wrestle through things. And I was thinking about it. He goes, some of them are done, uh, you know, they happen to us. Some of them are because of choices we've made that catch up with us. But the bottom the line, he says, when that happens, this personal disintegration, is when things fall apart. And um, it's traumatic. And our world is disrupted. And it's not about like, oh, just go on with things. It doesn't work that way. He says, that's one place, that's one dark forest. He says, another dark forest, and he contrasts it. He says, he says I'm going to call this one, he says, personal disappointment. And one of the things he says in this is the second one. He says, basically, he says, it's different than the first one, because the first one has to do with the meltdown. Something happens that's really bad. It's, not, it's just so hard. He goes, but the second one is different because what happened. He goes, another kind of dark forest moment is when it's not like something super bad just happened to us. This is it's actually what happens when, over time, we just start to get worn down. And over time, we can sense disappointment beginning to creep into our lives. Maybe a dream we once had, we're beginning to realize it's not going to happen. And maybe a hope that was so inspiring to us has now been deferred so long that part of us just decided we're just going to give up. I might not even not pray for it anymore because it's never going to happen. He talked about that level of disappointment and how that over time that can just wear us down. How that can get us to places sometimes where we just give up. A relationship isn't getting any better. We keep trying, we keep trying, keep trying. Nothing's breaking through. I'm trying to get free of something. I can't get out of it. Over time, I lose my desire to just confront things. I've given up. I've, I'm doing stuff. Maybe I'm on my job. I'm doing my job, but I don't love it. I, I have nothing that inspires me. That, thing, that place. He says, that's a dark forest. And then he did something else on his third one. He flipped things. And he said, the third one's a little different. He says, it's actually a dark forest. He goes, but it's a different kind of dark forest. And he called it positive dissatisfaction. And what he said was, 
This has to do with when we, it's not a, something bad we're wrestling through. Something either traumatic or just relentlessly wearing us down. He says, this one has to do with when we come to a place in our lives where we go, you know what? I am living so far below what God has called me to be. Where we actually get to a place where we say, I am tired of being stuck here. I feel the call of God to break me out of this. That positive dissatisfaction, he says, can become a powerful mechanism for change in our lives. That overwhelming sense that we can do better, that we can do better than this. And these are the conditions that make us open to change. And when I looked at Peter, if you can, go back to 1 Peter again. Because really, I think Peter is getting at that third one. What he's saying is, don't get stuck in, in faith. Add to it. Add to it. Have a, a positive dissatisfaction that compels you to want to move into the growing life. Look what he says, literally in verse 5. He says, I want you to supplement your faith. There it is. With a generous provision. And he uses the word moral excellence here. In the older version, we translate it virtue. It essentially carries with it the idea of moral energy, moral power, courage, vibrancy, vigor. The point being is this. Peter is saying, look, take your faith, which is the starting point, and make it vigorous and energetic. Don't, how can I say, add to your faith. Don't, don't, don't let it get dead. Make it a living faith. Um, don't just say, I identify with you, Jesus. Let Jesus work in your life. Go to work with him. Um, that's a very different way of approaching it. It's not just like an intellectual, it's not just a belief system, an intellectual agreement on who Jesus is. What he's saying is don't, that's good, that's the starting place. Don't stop or ever settle just for that. Add to your faith a vitality. Choose to pursue it vigorously. Grow it. Put your heart into it. Contend. Give it your best. He's basically saying we're not to just kick back and take our ease and, and, and wait, oh God, if you want to motivate us, I'm, I'm open. Uh, we've all seen that. Uh, you want to come? It's going to be great. Eh. I guess I'll go. But it's, it's, it's good. Didn't you want to go? Eh, okay, I guess so. I don't know if I want you to come then, because <laughs> if that's going to be your attitude, right? No, I really do. But... Could you act like you care a little bit? Yeah, but I don't want to be fake. You know, I just don't feel like being a fake person. I don't feel it. See, here's the thing. Faith and feelings, very interesting relationship. Which follows the other? Do the feelings produce the faith or the faith produce it? I think when we act on our faith, feelings follow. But if we wait for our feelings to, to generate enough initial inertia, um, we may never move. And what we're talking about here is moving. He says, in light of God's great promises, and he lists them, in light of this expansive opportunity that God has opened up to us, these exceedingly great and precious promises, in light of that, choose to build on your faith. That requires effort on our part. This is a very big difference here. It's almost like he's saying, look, I want you to push into this and, 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 not, and, and pursue God. My prayer for you, he says, is that you would build on your faith. 
let it be something that's alive. Put your heart into it. Don't just dabble with it. Go at it in a way that is sincere. You know, you're, you're, you're actually trying. You're, you're, you're making adjustments. You see what I'm saying? It's different than just like passively doing something. It's like, throw your heart into it. Now, so here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to sort of clo- kind of clo- have this closing section formed around questions that I'm going to just post for us to wrestle with. And those of us who are a little more serious about this or feel God calling us, we might actually wrestle with this in our own heart, alone with God, or we might actually have some conversations, which I call Christ-centered, God-informed conversations that create a degree of synergy and catalyze certain things in our heart that wouldn't take place otherwise because we're coming together with others and we're reasoning together. So here's a question that was worth asking. What would, at this time in our lives, adding to our faith look like? What would that look like in terms of how we are building our lives? What would that look like? And are we doing anything to think about it? You know, we live, we live in like um, crazy times. These are difficult, challenging, perplexing. Somebody said to me, they're scary times. I was talking to my son, who was away at college, and he just wanted to talk. Normally, he likes to talk about sports or other stuff. He says, hey, Dad, let's talk about what's going on in the Middle East. And so he's floating back and forth at me. And you know what? We've got wars. Rumors of wars, isn't how relevant is that? That's what Jesus said. There will be wars and rumors of wars. We have insane acts of barbaric terrorism. I mean, incredibly insane. And then on top of that, diseases breaking out that have to be seriously quarantined because they have tremendous implications. On top of that, at a societal level, we live in complex, wonderful, turbulent, emotionally toxic, relationally impacting, highly addictive times. And um, you know what that's going to require in times like these? A sustainable faith that is resilient. It is nimble. It is adaptable. It is flexible. It is capable of meeting anything that happens in life. That's the kind of faith Peter's talking about. A sustainable, resilient faith, a way of living with God that allows us to be a blessing to others and move through anything that comes our way. Now, that's what he is saying. So here's the question then. Are there areas where we may need to be more diligent in? Are there areas of expansion that he may want to bring us into? Some of us, we, God is trying to call us to respond to his overtures. He's been challenging us. He's wooing us. He's pursuing us. Like Lewis said, the divine humiliation of a God who will pursue us. And accept us sometimes. It's like, who is God? how can God be so magnanimous as to put up with some of the stuff that, that we put him through? And yet he loves us. He waits for us to come around. He doesn't even need us to be perfect. He just needs us to, pers- just to go at it in some way. He'll meet us. Draw near to God, James says, and he will draw near to you. And so we have to ask ourselves, for some of us, what is that going to look like? We say, well, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. It's going to cost me too much. I don't want to make a change. I'm afraid I'm going to fail. Fail before. Don't be afraid. For some of us, the first step that we're supposed to take, the first step we're supposed to take is a step of faith. And like Lewis say, Lord, I'm opening up my heart to you. I'm I'm going to admit that God is God. And I'm going to go for it. 
and let the adventure begin. Others of us, the Lord is, the Lord is saying to us, your step of faith right now is to take seriously your life of faith. Pay attention to your soul. Pursue it. Read my words. Study it. Get around people. Talk about it. Invest in quality time to think about things. Pray about things. Reflect on life. Ask good questions. Interact. Invest in relationships. Again, small groups, friendships. Be accountable. Take seriously this life with God. It will have amazing dividends. It will pay off. It will have blessing down the generation. God, it's so, so what is, some of us, God, say, this is the time to upgrade that life with, that you say you wanted. Take it seriously. Honor me in it. Then for others of us, it's like the Lord is saying, you know, no, now is the time. You've been following me a long time. Reactivate, re-energize, because you're in a dark forest right now because you're going through the motions. Let that heart be on fire. You know, I was, t I was talking to someone. Um, I, was having, I, I was talking, and I said, I care about this person. And it dawned on me. I said, you know what? You are so talented. So I was, I was thinking. I said, you are so talented. It's amazingly gifted. But you're living so far below your potential with God. You're treating this side of your life so lightly when according to Jesus, it's what matters the most. Pay attention to your soul, man. The other person I came across, and I see this has happened a few times to me, I come across someone, and I remember when I was years before, I'll meet, I've met, I haven't seen them maybe for a while. I see them because I remember them one way. It's just totally in love with God. And I come back later, and life has beat them down, beat the fire out of their eyes. I look at them, it's like I'm looking at a different person. It's like, what happened to you? I didn't say it. What happened to your love for the Lord? It got beat down by life. Spark is gone. Say, Lord, don't let that happen to me. I meet people, and I'll finish with this. I meet people in this church who are older than me, who inspire me. Some of them in their 60s. Some of them in their 70s. Some of them in their 80s. And I've watched them transition, because I've been around long enough. Watched them transition through phases of life and retain a vibrant, vital love for God that has allowed them to negotiate each life shift and retain an expansiveness in their life. I've watched them grow. I've watched them keep learning. I've watched them stay in love with God, find new challenges, even as the outer person perishes. Yet my inward man is renewed day by day. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've witnessed it. I've watched people go through a dark forest time and then come out of that dark forest and say, I need to return to my root. And I watched them come alive at a decade when a lot of people say your best part of your life's over. And I've watched them come alive heading into uh, their elder years, alive again for God. How good is that? And I said, Lord, help us. Help me, Lord. To, to, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. And if I'm going to go down some bad path, then I'd rather you take me home <coughs> sooner. Because I want to walk that path. <coughs> Let's pray. Lord, I want to ask you to be with us here because, you know, I know you love us. I know you call to us. And a lot of times you're asking us to step into things and they're small. They're not even, they're not even big. Sometimes that dark forest leads us to a narrow little path.
that requires a small step of faith in the right direction. And what that ends up doing is it ends up opening up an expansiveness in our lives that would have not been present or possible before. It's where the light is. It's where the light is. The vista awaits. And I just pray that you would help us, God, to do that. Wherever we are, young, old, just starting to follow you, not quite there yet, or someone who's been following you for a long time. I just, I just pray, remind us to respond. If we make excuses, we can always find them. We'll never be ready if, if, we, don't want, if, if we just let that be the case. Help us, Lord, to respond to your overtures of love and to the calls of growth that you've placed into our lives. I ask this, Lord, you know, bless the psalm that we close with that connects to it. Bless our time of giving. Bless all who are here, all of us, Lord. Um, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Amen.